Last week we had uh, started looking at some things related to hell and thinking about some of the teachings that are present in our culture, in the religious world. And we looked at, you know, scriptural teaching that there is, in, in fact, an existence to hell, that hell uh, is meant to be eternal, uh, and that there are, what we might say, there are no back doors to hell. Um, there is, uh, there's, while some people are teaching these days uh, that uh, there will be the opportunity, perhaps, for uh, people to repent uh, and leave hell, that uh, the scripture actually teaches the opposite, that there will not be um, and there will not be the opportunity to repent after death. One last uh, teaching, though, that I wanted to talk about uh, to finish up our, our examination of hell is a view that after death right, and after the last judgment, those that are righteous will go on to their reward in heaven, but that the wicked will be destroyed. Um, sometimes this is referred to as annihilationism. There are a variety of different views of this. Sometimes it is just uh, the, uh, the dead will be resurrected, of course, at the end of time, and the wicked will be immediately destroyed and cease to exist. Others say, well, there will be a period of time where there will be some punishment, but after that time period, it will cease to, the, the wicked will cease to exist. They won't be eternally punished in hell. There are some groups that have uh, taught this, um, and they're the ones that have kind of popularized it, but more and more it's becoming uh, a belief even uh, in, in other groups that have not traditionally held it. Uh, I would think of groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, who from the, usually pretty close to the beginning of these groups have, have taught this notion of uh, you know, the wicked will ultimately be destroyed, that they won't be punished eternally. But there are even um, you know, individuals, even among the churches of Christ, uh, who teach something similar. Essentially, one of the things that drives this view is a question of how can eternal conscious punishment be compatible with God's love? And if God truly loved people, how could he punish someone eternally in hell. And probably on the surface of it, that seems like an apparent contradiction. You know, just, you know, it seems like um, that an eternal punishment, uh, what kind of crimes could, could God actually punish someone for? But what about those scriptures that do teach eternal punishment, eternal hell, eternal fire? Um, well, Often from this view, the expression is that what is meant here is that what is in view is not the duration of the punishment, but the results. And so the punishment will not be eternal, but they will be eternally punished in death, right? And so they'll be eternally, they'll eternally cease to exist, right? And so it'll be punishment with the results of, you know, you, you don't exist anymore. That's what's the eternal part of the eternal punishment. And then finally, uh, individuals would point to scriptures that talk about internal destruction, right? the, the, that uh, the people will perish. Those, uh, you know, the Revelation refers to it as the second death. Those terms, they would say, 
uh, are final terms, right? They're, that they're kind of, there's a finality to them. They, there aren't uh, terms that suggest a continuance. While the, that, again, that argument, we can see why it would be appealing to some people. And we could see where there would be some interest to hope that that would be the case. I mean, you know, if you think of somebody that you know, right, who absolutely did not give their life to Christ, they lived an absolutely immoral life, and you, you feel confident just because of the way they lived, you know, they, they're, not, they're not going to heaven just because of the way they lived. And if, if it's a close family member, you might feel like, I'd prefer to them that they would cease to exist than they would be eternally punished. But as always, we can't allow those kind of feelings necessarily to drive what Scripture says and to contradict what Scripture says. So what does Scripture say? Well, first of all, there is an emphasis on the fires of hell being unquenched and eternal. We looked last week that there's an emphasis on uh, this idea of eternality when it comes to hell. When we think about it, um, and you know, primarily off the top of, of this argument, while the eternal results of punishment might sound good, that word means duration. It doesn't refer to the results. So the eternal punishment means a punishment that will last eternally, not that they will be punished and they will eternally cease to exist. There are passages, of course, that refer to this notion of uh, eternal punishment. Matthew chapter 18, particularly the latter part of that verse, uh, verse 8, Jesus says, It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or to two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Well, if the fire is not, if I'm not going to be in there eternally, why refer to it as eternal fire? What sense does it make if this isn't duration? I mean, certainly the idea here that Jesus is suggesting is it is better for us to cut off our hand, cut off our feet, pluck out our eyes, right? Hyperbolizing there to say it's better to do those things and then go into the next life damaged, so to speak, than to be thrown into eternal fire. If the fire is going to be eternal, wouldn't the punishment be? What about Matthew chapter 25, verse 41? Jesus says, uh, again, the the context of here is we're separating the sheep and the goats, and Jesus says, uh, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, we might immediately say, well, the reason it's eternal is because it's going to be for the devil and his angels. But why warn people? You're going to go into the eternal fire instead of just saying you're going to go into the fire. Why emphasize the eternal nature of the fire if there isn't the possibility that you will be there eternally? Additionally, at the very least, the idea that the wicked will immediately be destroyed upon resurrection is contradicted by teachings that indicate there will be conscious pain for the wicked. 
Right? They, they will experience at least some conscious pain. So at the very least, again, I, I think Scripture teaches it's going to be eternal pain, eternal conscious pain. But at the very least, we can say there will at least be some conscious pain. Jesus refers to it as there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, those, those are conscious reactions. Right? Those indicate that you are consciously experiencing that pain. Jesus also talks about uh, the rich man and the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, uh, of him being in torment. Right? So this idea of a, of a conscious experience. So it, it won't be some immediate destruction. Additionally, the conscious punishment is said, that we can look at is said to be eternal. So if at least some of it is conscious, that suggests that we're talking about the duration, not the result. It's not eternal destruction and that they will cease to exist. It is they will experience conscious pain eternally. But from a philosophical standpoint, I think we also need to ask, why is it that some people believe annihilation is more loving and just than everlasting conscious punishment? Why is it that that's somehow more loving and just for those people to cease to exist than it is for them to experience eternal conscious punishment? Plays at our heartstrings, certainly. We can, we can certainly kind of get that as emotional argument. But, but really, why is, it, why is one necessarily more just than the other? Think about some of the arguments that are made against capital punishment. People argue, no, no, it's more just for that person to be in prison for life than it is for the state to end that person's life. Yet, to turn around, the idea that that God is not just by allowing that person to continue to exist. By what standard or, or what rule are we using to make a decision about God's justice in that case? I think that in many respects we have to admit that we as human beings don't know what is just. For us to kind of suggest that maybe we aren't the ones that shouldn't be making a standard of judgment here about what is just or not just for God. God nowhere indicates in his scriptures that such an approach is unjust. Rationally, we, we don't necessarily know. I mean, you know, we, I don't know that you can make an argument from some sort of rational principle because we might simply argue to exist is better than to not exist. And so, therefore, it's actually better for a person or more just for a person to be in existence than it is for them to be wiped out. I'm not saying that's a good argument, but I'm saying that, that the argument itself that we know, we know this is more loving, and so this is what God's going to do. 
I think the, the very root of that is fallacious. Furthermore, I think it underestimates what sin is and what sin does to our relationship with God. We don't understand what sin is. We don't understand the effects of sin. Yet we would try to put ourselves in judgment of God as to what He should do. There's kind of a, you know, a little bit of arrogance there that we would know better than God if God is going to punish people eternally. Janice. Uh, Janice brings up the point about possibly repentance before capital punishment. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a perfect analogy like any analogy. <laughs> right, so you don't want to push it too far. But what we have here is you know, it's the same people that would argue it is better to continue to exist than to have that existence wiped out. You know, they're, they're kind of using the, the same argument as we would for eternal conscious punishment. Yeah, there's a passage in Proverbs, uh, I can't remember what the living thing is, but the dead thing's a lion. Uh, it's better to be a living something than a dead lion. It's in Proverbs somewhere. Somebody start reading Proverbs, you'll get to it before you get to the virtuous woman. So you can stop about verse, 11, uh, verse 9 in chapter 31. It might be a living dog, than a dead lion or something like that. Uh, So, in, in thinking about this uh, last class, uh, as we, we finish up here um, with talking about hell, um, I thought, well, okay, there's gonna, we're going to be going a certain amount of time, and then there's going to be extra time. What do I want to try to do with that? So, basically, at this point, uh, I want to open it up for questions. Are, are there things that we didn't talk about? Are there things you've been wondering about? Are there things, I mean, I might not necessarily have all the answers, certainly, but... Um, you know, I wanted to kind of give the opportunity for us to address some things maybe you've been wondering about as we've gone through this class. It's Ecclesiastes. Same, same person. Ecclesiastes 9.4. I would say that the fact that I knew it was a living dog and a deadline helped you, so I should at least get partial credit. And it sounds like a proverb, so. Yeah, the, the, the passages that talk about destruction, destroyed, um, you know, the, the language that's being used there, and, and I've, uh, Randy and I were talking a little bit about this, and I didn't take the time to actually look up the Greek. So one argument could be the, the Greek there doesn't mean like total destruction, obliteration ceased to exist. Um, so that might be part of it. But um, what's in view there is not... Like when we think of destruction, uh, we might think of you know, the elimination of something. But that's not really what's in view. 
right? What's in view is you're going to be destroyed, but it's destroyed eternally, right? Uh, so ruin sometimes uh, is used to talk about that. Um, but we can even think about how, you know, if something is destroyed, that doesn't mean it's completely wiped out of existence. But using that kind of language is to, meant to suggest, um, you know, just uh, what awaits. You know, and well, that's, that's something else we didn't talk about. I mean, what, what, is, what is hell going to be like? Um, and my hope is that nobody here finds out by experience. Right? So what does, what does Scripture teach us about hell? Well, Scripture talks about fire. It also talks about darkness. Um, does that mean it will be some sort of literal fire, or is fire just used figuratively? It'll be a place of punishment. Fire is, is meant to suggest what that punishment will be like. Darkness and separation are kind of meant to suggest what that punishment will be like. Um, if it is not literal fire, I don't think that breaks anything Jesus says or contradicts anything Jesus says. Um, but, but what's being suggested there is it'll be a place of punishment. It'll be a place of separation. Yeah, uh, Cecil brings up, uh, you know, there are passages that, that teach. Um, well, he, he makes the example, and I think we did refer to these passages, um, but where it's going, to be, it's going to be more tolerable for uh, Tyre and Sidon or Sodom and Gomorrah or Nineveh than the cities that existed at the time Jesus lived because they, you know, uh, for example, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, but you know, some of the cities Jesus went to didn't, right? And so he's, you know, Jesus says it's going to be more tolerable for those cities. Uh, he also talks about, uh, in Luke chapter 12, um, you know, the one who knew to do his master's will and did not do it will be beaten with many stripes. But the one who did not know to do his master's will and did things worthy of stripes will receive fewer stripes. Um, so, you know, does that suggest that there will be levels of punishment in hell? Perhaps, right? Be careful, though. Don't get into the whole nine circles of hell. We talked about this a couple, you know, we, we either get our, our ideas from Dante or we get them from Milton. Right? That's not necessarily what uh, that passage is teaching, but it is suggesting that, right, you know it, so it's going to be worse for you. Right? So definitely, uh, definitely want to con- consider that. It's, it's not suggesting, though, that the one who did not know that deserves stripes is going to get out. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching.
Yeah. Yeah. David mentioned, of course, the you know the the sadness of you know just be we're going to be those well, not us they're going to be separated completely separated from from God and that in itself is punishment right to to never uh, be near God have the blessings that God provides even you know. Jesus talks about the sun shines on the just and the unjust, the rain comes on the just and the unjust. I mean, even, even the wicked now receive blessings from God. But in hell, they won't even receive those kind of indirect blessings. Um, and just the sadness of, of never being near God, being in that outer darkness of separation from God. Other questions or comments? It doesn't have to necessarily be on hell. I know we're, that's kind of where we where we are. I have absolutely answered every question you have about the end times over the past 11 weeks. Eat them all back. Wow. You know, that's fantastic. All right, we still have 20 minutes. What should we talk about? Yeah, go ahead, Randy. Randy asks a good question. Why, why doesn't the Bible give us more information about heaven since that's what we should be aspiring to, to go to, right? That, why not give us the carrot instead of the stick? Yeah, the, so the, the answer that was given at this lectureship Randy's talking about, uh, if, if we truly knew what heaven was like, we'd be of no use because we'd be focused solely on, on going. Yeah, I think that was uh, part of what I was thinking, is that it might be beyond human comprehension. I mean, I think that the, the last two chapters of Revelation, and when we were talking about New Heavens, New Earth, we, we talked about this a, a little bit. I think the, those last two chapters in Revelation are giving us a picture of what heaven's going to be like. But the only way to do that is in language that we can make sense of. Right? And so, you know, I talked about the idea of um, streets of gold. Is there really... Going to is there really now, or there, there's going to be a street of gold in heaven? Probably not. Um, that, but instead, that's kind of meant to suggest to us the uh, the bounty, the blessing, the the wonder, the luxury of heaven. I mean, if you can use gold to pave a street with, <laughs> right? You don't, money is the you, know, you don't even have to worry about money right? um, if you if you can pave a street with gold. So it's meant to kind of symbolize some things that. But yeah, we can only use 
types of analogies uh, to try and talk about these things. Yeah, I mean, the, that's another good example. That, um, and especially, you know, Revelation 22 talks about, you know, there's a, there's a water that comes out from the throne, or a river that comes out from the throne and goes down the street. Uh, and on either side of the river is the tree of life. Uh, and its leaves are for the healings of the nations. It bears, uh, you know, different fruit each month. And so, you know, part of what we lost in Eden as a species, we regain in heaven. And so that, you know, that too is kind of a, a parallel of, of what awaits us. Um, right, yeah. You know, trying to describe like a beach or the mountains or some sort of a other scenic uh, beauty that you know, to somebody who um, is blind, right? There's no frame of reference there to try and... And so you kind of have to... I mean, that, that might actually be even more difficult because, if, if, you know, to try and even use symbols, but right, we're, we're spiritually blind. Right? And Jesus talked about the blind leading the blind and both fall into the ditch, right? And so we're, we're kind of spiritually blind uh, ourselves. And so, you know, these things like precious jewels and gold and and cities, and streets, and temples. We can, we can grasp that. But we always have to remember it's, it's, it's not that. It's like that. It's, it's like a city. It's, it's like a street. But, you know, it's beyond that. Yeah, the, the, the language there is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's inspiring, especially, you know, you know, thinking about, it's inspiring to us, but thinking about those, those first century Christians that originally received the book of Revelation, who are persecuted, they have a lot of, uh, you know, their, their lives are unstable, they're, they're not sure what's going to happen, and right, John is saying, God's promising you a place that is, it's founded on 12 foundations. It's got these huge high walls, but the high walls don't matter because you can keep the gates open all the time because there are no enemies that could even come there. It's, it's light, it's bright, it's, uh, you know, precious metals are worth nothing there. Um, don't you want to go, right?
Well, I, I think what's, what's suggested there is that, you know, kind of the, the healing of the nations refers to, you know, the nations will be healed, right? The nations that are coming into the city uh, will be healed by it, right? So a kind of a healing of, of this life um, in that next one. Go ahead, Joy. Uh, if you didn't uh, hear what Joy was saying, I'm sorry. I can't repeat all of it. <laughs> it was very good. You can ask her about it after class. Unless you're watching online, then I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> one thing I, I don't know, one of the things I don't know, I guess I should say it that way, what will we be doing in heaven? I know it will involve praise, right, and I find it very interesting that you go through Revelation, especially when you see the heavenly scenes, and any time the four living creatures are around, they're always praising. Right? Some commentaries have referred to them as kind of heaven's worship leaders. Right? It's like any time you see them, they're always, there's some sort of praise. They have to praise God. And I guess we can kind of understand why. But I, I don't know, is that the only thing we'll do? Some people might say, well, I'd get tired of that. Well, if you'd get tired of that, that might, not mean, that might mean that you might not be going. <laughs> but is, is that it? I mean, you know, when we look at some of these passages and we think about some of the things that Scripture teaches us about, us, uh, teaches us about heaven, a lot of the things that we do now, we won't need to do then. 
right? The work that we do, what will we need to work for? I mean, now we work to get money so we can provide for our families, so we can you know, spend it on enjoyment. The streets are paved with gold. Right? Wages are not a thing. Good, Pat. Yeah, going to the great, uh, you know, football field in the sky or those kind of things is like, well, I don't, you know, I, that that doesn't seem to fit with what, you know, what what heaven, at least what's pictured in in heaven. <clears throat> There's probably some sort of joke that I can make about rivalries, but I'm going to let that go. We're going to be there, but the other team. Other questions, comments. I think in many respects that what we have in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a consistent record or consistent narrative telling us and preparing us for what comes after that last page. I'll be the first one to emphasize when you study Scripture, you've got to study it in its context. And especially with the, the New Testament letters, they were written to specific churches that were dealing with specific problems at specific times. You've got to study that. But those books, those letters, were put together. God brought human beings who brought all these things, brought them together to tell a narrative of God's redemptive work. And God undoing what we have done. And so in many respects, the notion of new creation, new heavens, new earth, is all about restoring that relationship that was in the beginning. That Adam and Eve had where God walked in the cool of the garden with them. And the very, end, the very last chapters of Revelation, that's what's pictured. Right? There's no need for a temple. There's no need for a sun, any stars, any other types of light, because God is with His people. And that, to me, I think is just a really amazing thing to look forward to. Now, I believe that Scripture teaches that He dwells among us now. He's present in His church. His Spirit lives lives in us as a down payment, a promise of that day. But that experience is, is nothing compared to what it will be. So as we finish up, and we'll, we'll quit early unless anybody had any last questions or anything else they want to talk about. 
So if that's the case, go ahead. Uh, no. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, and so David brought brought up about you know some translations emphasizing that we'll be serving God along with, yeah, and so um, you know that that it's more than just you know just praise. There's more to our worship and ser- what this the service component. Um, you know, it, it's not going to be floating around on clouds, strumming harps with our halo and wings, right? Now, that's not what it's going to be. I can tell you, it's not going to be that. But somehow, serving, praising. And if all that's true, that God dwells among us, but He's going to more fully dwell among us, that's what we're looking for. Why sometimes does it seem like our worship is so anemic? That it's such a struggle to get up on Sunday morning, to come on Wednesday night. I'm speaking to people that are here on Wednesday night. (laughs) For any of you that are watching later, if God is so amazing, and heaven is so amazing, yet my life is so anemic in in my commitment, if my praise sometimes has to be forced, Maybe I need to spend some more time thinking about how amazing God is and what He's done for me already and what He's promised me He will do. And you'll notice I said me. But I would encourage you as well. Let's close with a prayer.